today on the Janice Adams Show, the start of a two-part Black History Month special, Glory Days in Concert, from African roots to the dawn of freedom and the era of Obama, how we made it over, the African-American experience in word and song, from the spirituals to gospel, jazz, and hip-hop. That's how I made it over, of music underscores the promise of a new day, a new century, a new reason for hope. The year is 1900, with each new Jim Crow law eroding hard-won Civil War gains. People need to celebrate their lives, their achievements, the road they have traveled thus far by faith. They need a joyous fest to renew the spirit for the battles ahead. Something special is in order. The fast-approaching Lincoln's Birthday Tribute, a treasured opportunity for slavery's children and grandchildren to celebrate their freedom from bondage, is just the right opportunity. In Jacksonville, Florida, the Johnson brothers, James Weldon and Jay Rosamond, are commissioned to compose a hymn for the occasion. With the premiere fast upon them, they have the first two stanzas finished. Lift every voice and sing, till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died. But James Weldon Johnson, the lyricist, was having a hard time with the third verse. I paced back and forth on the front porch, repeating the lines over and over to myself, he said, going through all the agony and the ecstasy of creating. As I worked through the opening and middle lines of the last stanza, I could not keep back the tears and made no effort to do so. God of our God of our silences, Thou who has brought us thus far, on our way, Thou who has by Thy might led us into the us forever in the past, we pray. A century later, this hymn continues to inspire us as our national black anthem. Has brought us 
us march on till victory is won. Praise the bridge that carries you over, the old folks say. Go down to the river, cross over to the other side. Praise the bridge, no matter how rough the ride. Remember the bridge and how long our people have walked that walk on that road of life. Praise the bridge. Praise the bridge, age-old voices bid us ask. How did we make it through? We did it step by step, moment by moment, day by day. Making a way out of no way, our people blazed a trail of endless glory days across thousands of years and millions of miles. Praise the bridge. Praise the bridge. As bells toll for the departed souls of September 11th, our morning is a tragic reminder of the World Trade Center area's older status as Ground Zero for the sins of slavery and its legacy. 
For hundreds of years, a colonial era site just blocks away lay buried beneath centuries of denial. Then, in 1991, its soil turned for a new construction, the skulls and femurs of Africans enslaved and semi-free literally rose from the earth to reclaim their place. In this resurrection, this ultimate Sankofa moment, the ancestors spoke as one. Sankofa, said they, to go forward, you must go back. There can be no progress before owning your debt to us. Archaeologists dubbed this African burial ground the most important find since the discovery of King Tut's tomb. Scholars foretold previously unknown tales the bones would tell, long-held secrets they would decode. During Europe's colonization of the Americas, 5.5 million of the first 6.5 million who crossed the Atlantic were Africans. Arising from an uneasy rest to awaken a forgetful world, the metaphors these long-buried Africans spoke were well-placed there at the base of the new federal office building, there at the foot of City Hall. These buried Africans had built the city of New York, its roads, buildings, and its fortunes. Refusing them burial in New York's white churchyard cemeteries, city's officials located the African burial ground in a then-remote section of Manhattan. As the city grew, the ground was seized, its existence covered over by 1795 and renamed, interestingly enough, Republican Alley. The very existence of these Africans had been covered up by power politics of every stripe. Black hands enslaved had built this nation. But truth crushed to earth will rise again. From the Capitol building itself in Washington, D.C., to capitals of commerce and industry north and south, there were truths to be told the dead would not let rest. Then came 1991, summer of the backhoe, that Sankofa summer, when the African ancestors retook their place. They sent up a nail, then the lid of a coffin. Skeletal remains lay in wait, some with arms crossed, others bearing gifts, Artifacts, a beaded girdle, a musket ball in a woman's chest, buttons and coins, a shell buried beside a head. Their clothes had decomposed, but one man's British Marine officer uniform's buttons had not. Then there was number 340. Her teeth filed, a clay pipe at her side. Waist beads of cowrie, amber, and glass draped her hips. Blue and white beads rimmed her wrists. Clues. She'd been captured, probably from Senegambia, modern Senegal and Gambia, and sent across the middle passage as a teen. months, years of politicking, dared attempt to silence the voices now speaking the volumes in death they'd been prohibited from writing in life. David Dinkins, New York's only African-American mayor, heard the call. His Landmarks Preservation Commission would declare historic, would sanctify this African burial ground and the Commons Historic District. 
With that, 400 ancestral remains arose for disinterment and the journey to Howard University's Cobb Laboratory. Once there, the bones told the lives they had lived, worked to death, muscles torn from bone, this from the stress of lifting loads too heavy to bear. Far too many were children. From this unfathomable grief and despair, from this unquenchable hope and love of life, our cage birds would create new songs to sing. Songs from the depth of their souls and the life experience, the music we revere as the spirituals. Ooh, fix me, Jesus. Fix me. Sankofa, to go forward, 
you must go back. Their stories now being told, their bodies now reburied, alive in us, their souls soar free at last. Sankofa, to go forward, you must go back. Glory Days in Concert, a Black History Month tribute on The Janice Adams Show. More after the break. For the ancestors, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in their sight. For the ancestors. Year 1067, Tenkamenen, king of Ghana, holds court with his people. Al-Bakri, an Arab geographer, has recorded the moment. He sits in a pavilion around which stand his horses caparisoned in cloth of gold. Behind him stand ten pages holding shields and gold-mounted swords. And on his right hand are the sons of the princes of his empire, splendidly clad with gold-plated into their hair. The year is 1340. Timbuktu is a bustling city of 100,000 people, the medieval world's greatest hub of international commerce and scholarship. Here at the University of San Corre, Africans study law, history, literature, and medicine. These teachings of the oceans and stars will guide Abu Bakari II, Mali's Marana Prince, to the Americas 180 years before Columbus. But who would have foretold what would befall Africa and the Americas? The year is 1441. Portugal's Prince Henry, dreaming of glory and wealth for his king, sets out to conquer the Ethiopias. As Europe's warrior explorers will later come to the Americas seeking the seven cities of gold, Henry's soldiers crave Ethiopia's riches. The year is 1452. Pope Nicholas V, as head of the Catholic Church, condemns all non-Christians and deeds Portugal the right to conquer all non-Christian lands. From the logbook of Christopher Columbus, Saturday, May 12, 1492. Blessed by the Pope, sponsored by Spain, Columbus sails a new route to India. He has promised the title of governor of all captured territories. Thursday, October 11, 1492. Columbus's expedition spies land. This, as Columbus recorded it in his logbook, I called upon the two captains and the rest of the crew who landed to bear witness that I, before all others, took possession of that island for the king and queen, his sovereigns. Friday, October 12th, 1492, Columbus goes ashore. This from his logbook. Numbers of the people of the island straightaway collected together. As I saw that they were very friendly to us, weapons they have none, it appears to me that the people would be good servants, and I am of the opinion that they would very readily become Christians, as they appear to have no religion. If it please our Lord, I intend at my return to carry home six of them to your highnesses. The year is 1493. With Columbus's return, Pope Alexander VI awards the New World, the Americas, to Spain and Portugal to conquer and convert all non-Christians. And so the seeds are sown. 
Autobiography of Olado Equiano, born in Benin, kidnapped in childhood. Sometimes we are visited by locusts, which come in large clouds so as to darken the air and destroy our harvest. When it does, a famine is produced by it, then war. From what I can recollect of these battles, they appear to have been eruptions of one little state or district on the other, to obtain prisoners or booty. Perhaps they were incited to this by those traders who brought the European goods amongst us. I believe most slaves are procured this way, and by kidnapping. Who are we looking for? They have taken my son, Oladu. Who are we looking for? They have taken my mother. Who are we looking for? They have taken my father. Who are we looking for? They have taken my sister.
Out of this terror and despair, a tune arose from the cargo hold of a slave ship. This haunting melody seized hold of the ship's captain, John Newton. Coming through a terrible storm on the high seas, this slave trader would come to his conversion and soon give up the slave trade for the ministry. Setting words to this African hymn of pain and praise, Glory Days in Concert, a Black History Month tribute on the Janice Adams Show. More after the break. A letter from John Rolfe, January 1620. About the latter end of August, a Dutch man-of-war ship of the burden of 160 tons arrived at Point Comfort, the commander's name, Captain Jope, his pilot for the West Indies, one Mr. Marmaduke, an Englishman. He brought not anything but twenty-and-odd Negroes, which the governor and Cape Marchant bought for victual food, at the best and easiest rate they could. 
In the years following the landing of these first 20 African Americans, colonial planters learned a vital lesson. Native Americans familiar with the land escaped easily. White indentures disappeared into the general white populace, but Africans stood out. Like their indentured white counterparts, in seven years' time, these black innocents petitioned the courts for their freedom. In the nation's first race-based legal decision, Virginia's judges created a crime of which the Africans could be found guilty. The crime of heathenism, not being a Christian. For that, the punishment was further bondage. And so to avoid this fate, Pragmatically forsaking their gods and their ways of home, Africans converted to Christianity and baptized their newborns. To preserve white advantage, the colonies, with Massachusetts in the lead, legalized slavery, boosting business with free labor and lasting relief. This from Oladu Equiano. I had seen a black woman slave cooking the dinner, and the poor creature was cruelly loaded with various kinds of iron machines. She had one particularly on her head, which locked her mouth so fast that she could scarcely speak and could not eat or drink. I afterwards learned this was called the iron muzzle. Waters rush the banks of the Rapidan River. At its edge stand a slave, Tony, and his horse. The flood has not been kind to Montpelier Plantation, home of President James Madison. Madison is old now, no longer in office, his body bent and frail. What will Tony tell him of the damage surveyed? Of the rivers he will say what he has come to know of life. I tell you what, Massa, he says, I think the Lord Almighty, by and large, he do as bad as much harm as good. The history of slave revolts in America is as old as slavery. In 1822 in Charleston, South Carolina, the planned revolt of a free man, Denmark Vesey, was betrayed by a house slave. A carpenter by trade, Vesey had won a lottery and bought his freedom. Refusing emigration to Africa, he chose to remain in the States. To see what I could do for my fellow creatures, he said. Then came Nat Turner, a man born to revolt. His mother, refusing to birth a child into slavery, had to be strapped down to prevent her from drowning him at birth. His father, kidnapped in Africa, endured the Middle Passage, escaped, and it is rumored returned to the continent. Nat also attempted escape, but was caught and brutally lashed. My Lord, he calls me, he calls me by the thunder, the trumpet sounds within my soul. I ain't got long to stay here. A born mystic, Nat Turner took his signs from nature. He said the Holy Spirit had come to him with a vision of his destiny. The vision told him to wait for a sign in the sky, then fight the serpent of slavery. That sign came with a solar eclipse of 1831. I ain't got long to stay here. On August 21st, Turner's men launched the most successful slave revolt in U.S. history. The first killed were Turner's owners, then 57 of slavery's perpetrators and beneficiaries. This from historian Lerone Bennett. 
It is not true that Nat Turner initiated a wave of violence. The violence was already there. Slavery was violence. Nat Turner's acts were responses to that violence. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Ooh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? That is how the slaves recorded what would happen to Nat Turner. In retaliation, innocent slaves were tortured and massacred. Turner's army of nearly 70 was executed. Were you there when they nailed him to a tree? Were you there when they nailed him to a tree? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? That is how the slaves spread the word. In the aftermath of the revolts, slaves dared not speak of Nat Turner. Don't say all you see or tell all you know. What they could not speak, therefore, they sang in this newspaper, reporting the events far and wide. Were you there when they pierced him in the side? Were you there when they pierced him in the side? Oh! Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they pierced him in the side? On the day Prophet Nat was hung, his body was stripped and skinned. The sky grew dark, and it rained in the midst of a dry spell, just as he had prophesied. It was a fact of great moment to blacks and to whites. Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when the sun refused to shine? And this testament of hope, oh, but were you there when they rolled away the stone? Sometime between 1773 and 1775, David George, a slave, founded the first African-American church, 
South Carolina's Silver Bluff Baptist. Using biblical texts, George strategized a mass flight from slavery. The story of Israel's deliverance struck deep chords for an enslaved pastor, shepherd, and his flock as the Americans waged their revolutionary war. David George safely delivered his flock out of bondage. From the legacy of this South Carolina church has come a faith-based freedom movement that powered the civil rights movement and still inspires us all. Wandering the old church cemetery in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, etched in weather-worn stone is a love story for the ages. Twin black slate headstones inscribed with carved urns and epitaphs read, Sacred to the memory of Amos Fortune, who was born free in Africa, a slave in America, he purchased liberty, professed Christianity, lived reputably, and died hopefully November 17th, 1801. Sacred to the memory of Violet, by sale the slave of Amos Fortune, by marriage his wife, by her fidelity his friend and solace, she died his widow, September 13, 1802. In 1779, Amos Fortune, an ex-slave, bought Violet, the love of his life. The next day they married, Amos was nearly 70 years old. Violet was 10 years younger. Making up for lost time, they adopted a daughter, and for the next 22 years, they shared the time of their lives. With age, the fortunes smiled. They took what was left to them of life and made the most of it. Praise the bridge that carries you over. Praise the bridge. Yes, this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine Shine this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine Let it shine Let it shine Let it shine May we know that together this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine mm, mama, This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine Let it shine Let it shine Let it shine Everywhere I go Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Oh, everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. This a little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This a little light, this a light of mine I'm gonna let it shine, shine, shine. This little light of mine 
Next week on the Janice Adams Show, part two of this Black History Month special, Glory Days in Concert, a tribute in word and song. For more information on this show and a list of the music and musicians who have so enriched this story, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Janice Adams.